In 2020, a year you'll hear Eugene Scott of Axios ask Ekemeni Uwan of Truth's Table about, we Americans had a lot going on. We were in COVID lockdown, and as you'll remember, a wave of public protests challenged police brutality, sparked most powerfully by the horrific, visible, repeatedly aired murder of George Floyd at the hands of the South Minneapolis police. Other recorded arrests or clashes between typically white police officers and black citizens also gripped our attention. Tens of thousands of Americans took to the streets to protest what was happening amidst calls for reparations, police or prison reform, debates over affirmative action, and demands for racial justice. Today on the podcast, we have the privilege of a conversation between two brilliant thinkers on the state of race in America and how, if at all, some faith angle fits into that. Ikemeni Iwan is a writer and critic who hosts the excellent podcast, Truth's Table. She co-wrote a book by that title, featuring black women's musings on life, love, and liberation. Ikemeni is an Aspen Ideas Festival fellow who's written for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, HuffPo, Black Voices, and she's been featured on NPR, MSNBC, The New Yorker, CNN, and The New York Times. Eugene Scott has been a prior guest journalist on Faith Angle's podcast. And unlike many top journalists working today in Washington or New York, he's a native to DC. He really knows this city and what makes it tick. For the last seven years, Eugene covered identity politics at the Washington Post, writing regularly for The Fix as the Post's national politics reporter. Since January of this year, he's been the senior politics reporter at Axios. He's had fellowships at Georgetown and Harvard and prior stints as a journalist at CNN, Time Magazine, the Arizona Republic, and the Kansas City Star. But back to 2020. Alongside cries for racial justice, 2020 was a year in which our most up-to-date national census, tallied once a decade, reminded us that the composition of the United States really is changing when it comes to not only religion, but also with respect to race and ethnicity. Today in America, 204 million people identify as white. 62 million Americans identified as Latino, making Hispanic Americans the country's largest demographic minority. That's up 23% from just one decade prior. 47 million black people in America make black Americans our second largest minority community. And as you'll hear, much of today's big think conversation stems from that rich, complex, magnificent experience. And finally, another 24 million Asian American, 9 million Native American, and 2 million Pacific Islander Americans brings us to 332 million people who are in the country today. We're a more diverse people than we've ever been. An interesting side note is that 34 million people in the most recent census identified as multiracial, up nearly four times from the 9 million multiracial Americans who self-reported as such in 2010. We're becoming more plural than ever. And 60 years after the March on Washington and MLK's I Have a Dream speech, how are we doing with all that diversity? At the outset of a presidential election year, this conversation dives straight into that question with signs of some real progress and signs of much, much work yet ahead. Enjoy the conversation. Awesome. It's so good to see you, Kimberly. As always, I think the last time I saw you was during White House Correspondents Dinner Weekend. Yes, earlier this year. So it's good to be here with you, my friend. 
Yeah, no, that was a really uh, special evening. We were at, I think, the Smithsonian. I want to get this correct. The National American, American History-, History and Culture. I think that's it. I think that's, that's it. For <laughs> those who don't know, a lot of Black people just call it the Blacksonian. And so that's, right. that's how I usually refer to it. But <laughs> be uh, very official in this context so that people can look it up. It was a beautiful evening. We were able to hear Diana Ross. I've never heard her live before. Had you heard her live before? No, that was a first and it was a time. It was a time. She will be 80 <laughs> years old, I think, like next year. And she was in her prime, it seemed like to us. Amazing. I told everybody I met her. I was like, okay, <laughs> I didn't really meet her, but she was singing to me and us. So she was yeah. within arms <laughs> Reach out we and were touch. right there, though. We were right there. Okay. So. Yeah. No, good to catch up. Obviously, you know, I've been familiar with your work for years. I mean, even no. before Truth's Table, before yes. the 2016 election. And so <laughs> it's awesome to be able to have a conversation in this context that we've had over DMs and text messages for years. Yes. And so given that, like, what are some of the things you find yourself thinking about on this final Monday in August when it comes to the work you do related to the intersection of race, faith, politics and culture? Yeah, you know, great question, Eugenia. I mean, as you know, today, I don't usually when I'm on podcast, I don't usually name the date, right? Because I know the recording comes down later, but I do think the date is significant, right? It's August 28th, Black August, you know, and... It is the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, right? Which was the march of singular significant movement within the civil rights movement where there was a march for jobs and freedom. This is the place, you know, on the National Mall, the Lincoln Memorial, where the late Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. And I actually had the honor and the privilege of going to the National Mall this past Saturday for the National Action Network's March for, not to commemorate, but they actually build it as not a commemoration, but a continuation of the work, right? And I think that, honestly, when we think about the state of race and the fact that we're here 60 years later, marching for much of the same things, yes, we've made some progress, but there is some significant strategies and laws and plans to take us back. And some that have actually gone into effect and some that are actually working. And so it was bittersweet being there at the march there on Saturday. And then now where we sit 60 years later on the date, talking to you about the state of race and where we are as a people. And then not only that, but coming back from the march on Saturday, just a few hours later, learning about yet another racist mass shooting that took place in Jacksonville, Florida, you know, where three Black people were killed at a Dollar General, just going and shopping, and three were killed. Angela Carr, Anult Laguar Jr., and Gerald Deshaun Dalion, who was killed by a 21-year-old white supremacist, Ryan Palmetter, I believe is his name, who then turned around and died by suicide after killing them. And I just am so, I'm not going to lie to you, I'm so grieved, I am so tired, and I am angry. And I believe it's a righteous anger because I think that it is wrong for people to be killed because they're Black, simply because we're Black. And it is just an affront, I think, to the gospel, to the faith. And in some real ways, we are under attack 
on a host of different fronts, right? From affirmative action, which I'm sure we will talk about later, to book bans, to our history being banned and erased in schools. I mean, to being in fear of our lives for going to a, a grocery store, right? I mean, for me, it, that shooting immediately recalled tops, right? In Buffalo, New York, and so many other racist mass shootings that we've also experienced. So to me, it is a heavy, a heavy day. You know, and then on top of that, we have the 68th anniversary of Emmett Till's lynching today as well. It's a tough time, I would say. You know, I wish we had a better report card. I wish I had a better report card to give, to be honest. But I do think that as a nation, and I think as believers, I think we too often want to run toward victory and celebration. And when really we need to lament, we need to lament what's been happening, what is happening. And live into that, you know, so that we can care and allow that lament to inform our work, our posture, and our approach to dismantling racism and white supremacy in this nation. Indeed, there's a lot there, obviously. I, as a national political reporter, focus on voting rights. And so I've been thinking about the March on Washington for a while, as that was one of the priorities of the original march to expand voting rights so that all Americans could participate in one of the most fundamental parts of citizenship in the U.S. And as you know, one of the pioneers in that fight was John Lewis, who was at the original march, who's no longer with us, but has really, you know, carried the fight to expand voting rights on Capitol Hill with him until his dying days. And now we have lawmakers still very much trying to keep that going, considering the rollbacks to the Voting Rights Act that originally passed in 1965, but there've been rollbacks about 10 years ago that make voting arguably less easy for so many Americans. And I was at a conference in Birmingham very recently, and Terry Sewell, the only Black lawmaker representing Alabama residents, made a point that you were making, and she was saying, despite how much has changed and how much progress has happened, so much still remains the same years later, decades later, after so many efforts have been launched to make America more consistent with the vision that this country's founders put forth. And that was one of the points I think was uh, articulated at the march this past weekend, the work that still needs to be done to make sure that people in this country have the full rights of citizenship. And it's going to be a very poignant idea that I think many people find themselves reflecting on as we move towards the 2024 election, which is just over a year away. I mean, arguably it started now. I mean, we're already past our first debate, but that is something I too have been thinking about quite a bit. I saw a story for, there's a movie coming out, Rustin, named after Bayard Rustin, who's viewed as the architect of Mm -hmm. the and very much looking forward to seeing that. I think it was produced by the Obamas and it'll give people who are less familiar with the origins of the march and his role in all of this, I believe a better idea of what it is that these individuals were trying to achieve and the role that faith played in all of it and values and and what it continues to play. Yeah, the shooting was very difficult, each and every one of them. And There are personal angles to them that I think a lot of folks who are maybe not as connected to the Black community fully understand. And this situation in particular stood out to me for two reasons. One, the shooter tried to get on the campus of HBCU. I think it's Edward Waters. Maybe I'm butchering that. In Jacksonville, uh, yeah, Edward Waters University, before he went to the Dollar General and was unable to 
honestly, thankfully, I mean, it's bad that any shooting would have happened anywhere, but had there been a massacre on campus, as so many people are, you know, returning to campus to start their school year, would have been devastating. But it's not a surprise that a historically Black college is being targeted because we know that historically these places are institutions that put forward the values and ideas and priorities that this individual was very vocal in being opposed to. And so it was without question targeted. It's my point. This was not a coincidence or happened by happenstance. But even the Dollar General is very interesting because there have been so many reports over the last few years about food deserts in Black communities and how many working class Black people get many of their groceries from dollar stores, in part because they don't have other options. And So even though that may not have even seemed targeted, it's very possible that it was. And so people who are Black often feel very unsafe in the spaces that they, you know, do life in because they find themselves being targeted by people outside of those communities who aren't just concerned about these individuals moving into, you know, maybe predominantly white spaces and changing, making them, but they are uncomfortable with Black people existing and being even in Black spaces. Even in Black spaces like HBCU or within our neighborhoods where we have been redlined and confined, you know, into these spaces or where affirmative action has now been shot down and now we see an influx, right, of applicants and people moving toward HBCUs, particularly Black people wanting to go into HBCUs because of the racism and the racial climate of what's going on there, that even in those places, we're not safe. You know, and so we see that the myth, you know, of white supremacy and the myth of white dominance and in the myth, you know, of trying to keep us apart and away from one another, that even in our spaces, this idol, because that's what it is, this idol of white supremacy is never satisfied and devising all manner of plans in order to carry out these wicked devices, as we know that there was a manifesto, right? That this racist killer had left behind as well, talking, just calling us everything, but children of God, right? And what does that mean, you know, to go into affinity spaces where we kind of like, okay, this is kind of our place where we can breathe our sigh of relief, you know, to some extent, to get some sort of insulation, some cover away from racism and the everyday racism from the quotient racism that we experience to the microaggressions to the outright very blatant displays of white supremacy just for that moment. And even in those spaces, we are not safe. You know, we are not safe. So it's not even just about keeping us out of other places of higher learning and, you know, and, and predominantly white institutions. It's just, that's not enough. That's not enough to satisfy the idol of white supremacy. The white supremacists do not want us to exist, period. And that has become abundantly clear. And if that's not abundantly clear to the listeners now, I don't know what will make it clear. The end of the Obama administration, which is very relevant in terms of how our culture has shifted and how race is being viewed and discussed and the response to 
what's happening. I recently moderated a book discussion focused on a new book, American White Lash by Wesley Laurie. And it talks a bit about how so much of what we're seeing is a response to that presidency in particular and throughout American history. This is not a new situation or incident or moment or time. I once heard someone very recently say, all of this is precedented. These aren't unprecedented times in many ways. But the point of the book was that whenever there is progress in terms of race matters, in terms of gender or sexuality or class, there has been a pushback from those who are uh, very much invested in maintaining the status quo. And on the topic of race in particular, which we are here to talk about most, we're seeing that and we're seeing a very violent response in so many ways. One thing I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on, though, is how is your work at Truth's Table different in this moment in 2023, heading into the upcoming election, different from maybe what was happening with you all in 2020? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, 2020. I thought you were going to ask when we first started Truth's Table, but yes. Yeah, 2020. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it has gone through an evolution, right? So Truth Table is a podcast built by Black women and for Black women. And it was established in 2017, Women's History Month, March 2017. And it was in response in some ways. I mean, we were still going to have the show, period. But when we started the show, we knew we had to come out of the gate resisting the white supremacist narrative and ideology that Trump was pushing as he was beginning his presidency. And so we started off with the resistance series. It was literally resisting <laughs> white supremacy in all these ways, in the voting booth, in our minds, right? In our theology, in all these different ways that it manifests, you know, it maps onto our lives. And so it was a lot of a pretty very explicit anti-racist, I would say ethos, you know, and posture. And that's what was required, I felt like, at the moment. If I fast forward to 2020, well, we're in the midst of the pandemic. And so honestly, in 2020, I think we were just trying to get our bearings and try to understand <laughs> that year was very intense. It just felt very chaotic. Every moment there was just something new happening, you know, with Trump and the election, you know, Biden and uh, Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris, and how historic that was. And it just was, and we were on lockdown, right? So we were in quarantine. And so we were... <laughs> We were really trying to keep our wits about us, to be quite honest. And at that time, we were also working on our book, The True Stable, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. And because we weren't out speaking and doing live podcasts, because we could not, right, because we were confined to our homes, that was an opportunity for us to write that book, which I'm proud to say was nominated for an NAACP Image Award um, awesome. this year. And you got year. to take mom to the award ceremony, I right? I did. I got to take my mom. That yeah, that's sweet. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's always awesome when there are these bright moments of levity and hope and joy and work that can often be, you know, the opposite of those things. Exactly. And Eugene, I'm glad you brought that up. And that's where we are now with Truth Table. In 2023, we have made a shift, a hard shift toward, I would say, yeah, post-2020 into 2023, we have just made, uh, because we're in our seventh season, we made a hard shift more into 
joy and things that it really wanted to kind of get back to some of the essence of some of the things that we did in the first season, even though we were doing resistance, we all talked about our hair, right? And <laughs> we have an upcoming episode more about our hair and how our evolution of how we think about our natural hair versus the extensions and the other many, many hairdos that we wear. Eugene, you know, my hair changes all the time. And yes. so- Yes. You know this. <laughs> and so we talked about, you know, we talked about all those things and we really wanted to push into that. But also our work has changed and evolved. Like I'm doing a lot of work, you know, as a charter member of the permanent forum for people of African descent at the United Nations. And so I do a lot of work with regard to reparations. And that's the work that I've been doing for many years. But in 2021, I became a charter member and doing that type of work internationally to fight for reparations on behalf of our people, so African and African descended people around the globe. And so our focus is much more centered just on our people solely and what brings us joy and what is enlivening. So even in that work that for me, I find it to be enlivening because you're working towards something, you're building something. We're trying to dismantle something. So you're building, but you're still also destroying you know, and dismantling, but you're doing it from a different posture, which I think is more, I have found to be more enlivening and more life-giving. Can I ask one maybe about the faith part of it? Sure. You know, I sense that when you get on MSNBC and you talk about sort of the inherent dignity of a human person and mm-hmm. intrinsic worth of all and the themes that they're frequently, frankly, very sort of theologically saturated for you at yes. least, but you're not necessarily broadcasting that to everyone. How do you find that the gospel part of things is tied for you to making racial progress, to justice, yeah. to standing up against white supremacy? What's the faith part in there? Absolutely. How, how does the faith part connect? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I cannot divorce my faith from anything that I do. I think that what it means to be a Christian and a devout Christian, I would I definitely don't shy away from that. That's true. I am. <laughs> is that my faith does inform everything that I do, including and especially my activism. You know, and I when I think about Jesus, I think about Jesus as our liberator, that not only was Jesus murdered by the state, but he was murdered by us individually, right? And I think we have to own the corporate, you know, the corporate structural sins, but also the individual sins. You know, these systems don't operate in a vacuum apart from people. There are people in systems pulling strings and moving things <laughs> and designing things in a way that favors, you know, the rich or it favors those in the majority over against those, you know, without power and over against those who are minoritized, right? And my marginalized. And Jesus's upside down kingdom, Jesus stands with the oppressed. Jesus stands with the marginalized. He himself was marginalized. And so that absolutely informs my faith and informs everything that I do. And that is the lens by which I work from. And of course, having the theological reality and doctrine of the image of God within every human being animates, you know, my work and that making sure that People can flourish, you know, regardless of their faith commitment, right? People should be able to be able to flourish, have a living wage, be able to go to the store and come home safely. Kids be able to go to school and come home safely. When I'm walking the halls of my niece's kindergarten, I shouldn't be worried and literally having images of a shooter coming in that place. You know, these are some things that we just shouldn't have to pray about. Of course, I did pray. Because I'm gonna pray, <laughs> but no, but really, this is something that we. I'm like, why, why, why is this? Why are we living in a world like this? And really, in the words of a friend of mine, Andre Henry, he always says this: It doesn't have to be this way. It really does not have to be this way. We just shouldn't live in a world 
where teachers are, have a more dangerous job than bank tellers. I just mm-hmm. I've had enough of the violence and I can't take it. <laughs> and yeah, I think that yeah. as, a, as a Christian. Well, I, I mean, picking yeah. up on mm-hmm. that a little bit, I, you know, Eugene is one of our advisors and he yeah. was at a conference recently where one of the speakers, Ryan Burge, was talking about how the number of nuns in the United States between 1991 and today has increased roughly fivefold. Yeah. More and more people are becoming a religious nun. Mm-hmm. Harry Bacon had a piece last week that sort of his story about why he's detached a bit from the church for right now on the Washington Post. And, and I'm curious how you think about that fact, the decline of religiosity alongside the decline of public trust in institutions across the board, except for maybe the military across the board, right. is a decisive element of our time. What does that mean in the black church, in the black yeah, community? Yeah. What does that mean in the race that you're covering in terms of 2024 and the state of the country overall? Eugene, you're a journalist. I heard a talk from Taylor Branch recently, and he uncovered all kinds of things about the original March on Washington I'd never known, just like a journalist. Journalist sees a little more deeply. Mm-hmm. What's significant about the decline in religiosity and the rise of the nuns as you see it for our broader culture? Well, Josh, I think about this often. I mean, I don't talk about this often, but as you know, I am a nun. I am not a Christian, and I would be in that group that was a part of the rise of the nuns during this time frame. And when I met both of you all, I was a Christian, and I covered identity politics for the Washington Post and taught about it at the Georgetown Institute of Politics. And so this work was very personal to me and very professional at the same time. But in this context, the way I think about it most as a journalist is us rethinking how we view uh, faith and values. You know, unfortunately, arguably, unfortunately, so much of our understanding of values and faith and worldview has been primarily through the context of religion and specifically Christianity. But we know that Christians do not have a monopoly on values or faith. Everyone has a worldview. Everyone is a values voter. Everyone has a sense of what is right and wrong and what is good and just and true and what's moral. And that's how they vote or vote against. And one thing I find myself thinking about in this moment where we don't have a nominee for the Republican Party yet, but the leading individual is someone for who many Americans within the GOP, outside of the GOP, many Christians and not, are really grappling with what values, ethics and morals are we going to turn a blind eye to, uh, give a pass to? affirm, adjust, and say are actually okay because they perhaps are being held by someone who is going to push back on the politics or policies of someone who we are even more convinced is immoral, if that makes any sense. And so I find this conversation personally and professionally very fascinating. But as a journalist, what I aim to do is seek to understand as broadly as possible America as it is, and to report on that as accurately as possible, specifically for people who may not have any type of interaction with people and tribes that they are not in. And so we talk about the rise of nuns, and we've been talking about the rise of nuns for a while. I'm reminded of, I believe, the book Unchristian from uh, David Barna, right? I think so. And uh, so David Barna from George Barna's shop. Yep. Yes. Yep. David Kinneman. Yep. David Kinneman, yes, from Barna Group. That was pre-Trump, maybe pre-Obama even. So, But we've been talking about this for a while, but the reality is a lot of people, and we mentioned the Black church before, a lot of people in this country don't specifically know any 
nuns, or at least any out nuns. I like to joke that coming out as gay was easier than coming out as a nun because I come from a very, very Christian family. I'm named after a a Baptist pastor. And the reality is that we still live in a world where people don't know what to think about these people who do not hold strongly or at all to a particular faith. And so I see this as an opportunity to help Americans know who their fellow neighbors are, which I know is something that Christians are or should be concerned about based on sacred texts, teachings, and how these individuals can figure out a way to put people in place and to send people to Washington who, regardless of the diversity of this country, can find ways to collaborate and come together for the common good. One last follow-up from me, and I'll get out of the way. Kind of going to go to town, okay? But, you know, I know, Eugene, you have been at some of the best schools in the country. I went to UNC as an undergrad, but worked at Georgetown as a fellow. You were a Kennedy School student. In general, the university is not particularly great on understanding religion or on owning aspects of ways in which religion is part of this story of racial progress, the story of all kinds of progress in the United States, actually history. I know you took a class with Richard Parker, the religion, politics, public policy, United States. That was the only class they offered with religion in the title. At Georgetown, they have a little shop with John Carr, but it's not, religion isn't something that's deeply woven into even that Jesuit university in terms of the classroom. Do you think that elite universities and or elite newsrooms are still struggling to get religion, to not be biased or sort of accidentally blind when it comes to have a blind spot when it comes to religion? Yeah, I mean, I think different institutions are struggling to different degrees, you know, depending on their teams. I mean, the reality is the media does not and never has reflected the diversity of this country. You know, I did a stint in evangelical spaces and, you know, that is a community that often is critical of uh, media for what they believe to be liberal bias and being largely ignorant of the worldview and values of people in evangelical spaces. And that's fair and that's accurate, I believe. But I think one thing that group does not seem to understand is that people left of them feel the same way about the media, uh, especially in faith communities left of them. I feel like the average white evangelical in Kansas would be frustrated and say, they're not people at the New York Times or the Washington Post who share my worldview. And I would want them to know that they're people from fill in the bank Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., who feel the same way. Uh, Black people, that wasn't clear. I know that Black people don't have a monopoly on the Baptist faith. But I think there are people who are working really hard in these newsrooms trying to do a better job of understanding people of faith, in part because if the 2016 election didn't reveal anything else, what it showed is you know, arguably the rise of white evangelicals. And not that it started in 2016. I mean, we know the Reagan presidency and the moral majority being this really pivotal point in terms of the influence of conservative Christians in national politics. But it's fair to say in 2016 that the impact went in a way in a direction that surprised many of us. So that has forced journalists and and newsrooms to say, what is happening? What can we do to better understand this community? And how can we make sure their voices are reflected with the level of accuracy and perhaps seriousness that this moment 
deserves. But I think there are also people in these newsrooms who are trying to communicate that as influential as evangelicals are, journalists have a lot of work to do to make sure that other faith communities are covered. As much as one can say that white evangelicals were incredibly influential in 2016 in choosing the presidency, I would love to respond and say in 2020, members of the Black church helped choose that presidency. We recently had our first Republican debate. Arguably, the winner of the debate, Vivek Ramaswamy, comes from a Hindu background. Right. And we see, as we've mentioned earlier, that nuns or those who are religiously unaffiliated are continuing to voice their concerns and values and will increasingly be a large voting block, not just with, you know, millennials, but Gen Z coming up. And quite frankly, from my research, there, there are actually more Gen X nuns than people think as well. And as so many people are having religious reckonings and deconstructions and stepping back and realizing that their personal values do not always align with what they have been exposed to in the context of organized religion. And they're looking for leaders, you know, from the White House down to the school boards that share that. And I mean, that's some of even what like the book debate is about, even what values are, the book canceling discussions are, what do we think is right and good and true and what should be taught to kids. And it's been very fascinating just watching this country really reckon with what it means to be as diverse as we truly are. Yeah. Kemeny, what do you think is behind that? Well, yeah, there was um, a whole lot there to unpack. I mean, just even talking about the nuns and how we see the increase of the nuns, we see that also manifesting itself in the Black church too, right? So I think in some ways, Eugene, you're a microcosm, if you don't mind, <laughs> you know, of that reality that is also happening in the Black church. And like you said, it's not a monolith as well. And I, I do think that even with the changing demographics, I don't think people always, well, because of race <laughs> and the ways that that construct flattens us, we don't always recognize or acknowledge the changing demographics of the Black community and therefore the changing demographics of the Black church, right? And so with the rise of Black immigrants in the country from Jamaicans, I believe Jamaicans are the majority, believe it or not. It's actually not the Nigerians. <laughs> Jamaicans, Nigerians and Haitians primarily are the majority of Black immigrants, you know, in the country, right? And how that's also changing and reshaping the Black community, Black politics, you know, and the Black church as well. But there was a bit of, I would say, from my own vantage point, a bit of a reckoning, I don't know, that might be a little too strong of a term, within the Black church of people also leaving, you know, the Black church, I think, in light of, well, first of all, the pandemic, you know, absolutely changed the way that people worship and whether, you know, whether people opt in, you know, or opt out of in-person service now, you know, their churches are still trying to recover from that, right? But also I think there was something that happened with George Floyd, you know, and then all of Black Lives Matter and all of the onslaught of killings at the hand of police and Black congregants, particularly millennials, you know, on down to Gen Z, feeling dissatisfied with the church's response, you know, with the Black church's response to that. Although we are often the Black church, which I am a member of and glad to be a member of, you know, I think that there was significant dissatisfaction, you know, with the ways that the millennials and Z wanted the church to respond and don't really feel like the messages really meet them, the true issues and the true conversations that they're having in the real realities that they're dealing with and grappling with. I know plenty of pastors, Black pastors that actually are, say, like with regard to LGBTQI rights that are affirming 
You know, whether some of those, their congregation as a whole, their church is, is a different story. There are some that I know that their church is actually affirming and welcoming and some that are still, you know, more conservative and still hold, you know, to a traditional view of marriage and sexual orientation. But I know that there is much more diversity, I think, within the Black church on that issue than I think people are privy to or aware of. And I think part of the reason why that is, is that some of these pastors have not been as forthright, you know, about, you know, their stance or their position, you know, on that issue. And then some that have, right? And they are progressive and their church is progressive and affirming in that way. But I think that is something that is also continuing to change. And I even saw that, you know, at the March on Washington, right? So they were correcting what they would call a corrective, you know, of what happened from the original march, where it was predominantly only men, you know, speaking. And Bayard Rustin was confined to the shadows doing the work, you know, as a Black gay man of organizing that, but yet we didn't really hear from him in the ways that he should have, and the women should have been heard from as well, who were also organizing, you know, that march. Whereas this time, they corrected that and right and heard from from women and you heard from LGBTQI members, you heard from rabbis and imams and, you know, so there was, you know, that correction that did happen at the march on this past Saturday. So, but it's very interesting to see where religion is now and where the Black church, you know, lands or sits, you know, within this religious landscape and context currently. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think one of the most interesting things about the last few years related to the role of the church in addressing issues of concern to many Americans, particularly Black Americans, is something we don't hear about as much as we used to in the news, and that's the Black Lives Matter movement. And I mentioned that to be a turning point because it was arguably one of the first major Black civil rights movements that was not anchored in the church or a faith-based community. And that's not to say that many people in leadership or on the ground aren't people of faith. There are lots of Christians who support the Black Lives Matter movement. But you know, when we think of the traditional civil rights movement, and even maybe after what's a more militant work aligned with the Black power movements, a lot of those individuals were affiliated with the Muslim faith, the Black Muslim faith specifically before, and Malcolm X and other individuals became a part of a Muslim faith that was not, you know, tied to the Nation of Islam. Sacred text shaped all of this, but that is not what we have seen in some of these most recent freedom marches, specifically, and when I say Black Lives Matter movement, there's so many things that we know that that movements focus on, but specifically related to police violence against Black people, there has been a concern among many individuals that, to your point, faith leaders, in particular in the Black church, and respectfully, perhaps, obviously, the white evangelical church have done an insufficient job of addressing this very real issue that's deeply impacting the lives of so many Black people. And those types of moments lead to deconstruction and lead people to step away and say, it's this community of believers, the place that I look to, to take the lead on addressing the issues that affect my life most directly. And it's been fascinating and enlightening and rewarding learning and reporting about these worldviews and seeing how they're going to shape how people vote and how they engage their political leaders in the upcoming election and elections to come. Do you, do you think if that deconstruction happens when we see those in leadership or authority not stepping up, not doing it, that that frankly often leads to deconstruction? How much of a worry do you think that is? I mean, is that tied to our knowing more because of great journalists like you and the iPhone and the ability to see everything everywhere all at once, know everything everywhere all at once? How worried 
should that absence of excellence in leadership make us as Americans? You know, it's certainly something to be mindful of and to think about. But one thing I've learned from my, you know, informal focus groups of people who have deconstructed their faith to the extent of no longer being a part of the Christian faith is no one really knows when the deconstruction began. Some people, I'm sure, can say it was this moment that made me feel like these are not my people anymore. But for the average person, it wasn't a police shooting, uh, or should I say a pastor silence about a police shooting. There were questions that they've always had or a negative exchange, or even to your point, an introduction or meaningful relationship with someone who did not share their faith, but who seemed to have deep convictions about what the world should be that helped them realize that it's very possible to be a person of deeply held convictions without being a person of this particular faith. But I do think if this is an issue, and from what I can tell, the motivation and goal should not be to see a decline in the rise of the nuns or to win people back. I think people can sense out insincere motives. But if this issue, be it police violence against Black people, be it concerns about income inequality or absence of access to health care, are of true concern to religious leaders based on their religious convictions, that should motivate them to speak to these things. I will say, as a committee noted, I mean, every issue that I have found, nuns to say matters most to them, I've been exposed to religious leaders who care about as well and preach about and teach about from the pulpit, not just, you know, a tweet here and there. But it is interesting to see what it is that people expect of their religious leaders in this moment. And I'm very sensitive to that personally. I very much like a Kimmy, I know lots of pastors and lawyers. Part of that's just being in DC and being black probably. <laughs> but I know there's so many people of faith grappling with these issues and have been for a very, very long time. And I'm not here to condemn or bring down the hammer on these individuals for not addressing them to the satisfaction of some folks, because I know that that's not who they answer to ultimately. But it is something to be mindful of, because if you are a shepherd and you have been given sheep and your sheep are concerned about something, to not address it or to ignore it at all, perhaps, can be as damaging as uh, speaking to it poorly. Do you have a closing word of Kamini about Eugene's a UNC grad and the affirmative action case just came through? Should pastors be talking about that or not so much? I mean, what's the best way forward? Josh, I, I would mean, say, Kimmy, to interrupt, I'm sure has yeah. thoughts on this. She grew up in California, which was at the <laughs> forefront of taking away affirmative action with the goal of, you know, supposedly making admissions solely merit-based at the risk of diversity. And so this is something she probably has been mindful of since like high school. Since forever. <laughs> exactly. Which is forever for me at this point. But yeah, I mean, I think this is something talking about these issues, you know, is second nature. You know, for black Christians, this is, you know, you you'll hear about this, you know, in the pulpit. I would say what is interesting, I think, about the black church and black Christians, period, is this sense in which I've been hanging with a lot of Gen Z. So you're hearing periods because I've been hanging with it. I've been hanging with the youngins, you know, I've been trying I'm trying to stay cool. And so <laughs> but you know, something that we have always 
understood is that we are sojourners. You know, scripture talks about how we're sojourners. We are passing through. And so on this side, we know everything is not going to land in the ways that we want it to land. Things are just not going to go in the ways we want to go. America is very good at reminding us of that every day. And so what does it mean to be, you know, heavenly minded and earthly good? Because you can be both. <laughs> you, you really can be both. And so I think that's something that shows up for us, you know, I'd say in the voting booth, right? I know plenty of Black Christians that do not line up with every jot and tittle of the Democratic Party. I know that. But they're Democrats themselves. <laughs> but they're more conservative on some particular issues, like say something like abortion, right? You know, but they're like the other side. Is trying to do this. They're taking away our, our books. They're trying to ban our history. They're trying to take us back. And so we show up and we do what we need to do in order, you know, to stem the tide and to really at least hold back as much as we can, as much as it depends on us, <laughs> as hold back the opposition, right, and the racism that comes our way. And I think that's something that we have always been able to, and I would say, I can still say confidently that we're still able you know, to do, right? To do some theological (laughs) work and some spiritual work and trying to figure out like, okay, a theological cost-benefit analysis, you know, if you will. When we go into the voting booth, there's even a lot of political diversity within the Black church that I don't think people always understand or appreciate, which I think Eugene knows very well and intimately know, you know, in a Black church, you're going to have some Black Republicans. Now, in this climate, it's a different, it's a different political climate, right? So I think some of that has shifted, right? But I know that there's black Republicans that I have gone to church with that have even voted Democratic because they're like, my party right now? No, I don't recognize it. (laughs) So I'm going to go this way because that's the expedient thing to do. You know, and so I think that's something that's interesting and something that I have not quite seen from my own anecdotal experience and how could I say dalliance, you know, within like white evangelical spaces when I was in. I don't know, Eugene, if that, does that resonate with you at all? Does that sound (laughs) familiar? Absolutely. I think this moment has forced so many people to reassess their identities and affiliations broadly, be they religious, political, racial, professional. And some people have landed in places they never thought they'd be five, 10 years ago. And quite a few are still trying to figure that out. And I think that'll be the case for a while. Yeah. And as you've both said in writing, there's a big opportunity in that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Faith Angle connects leading journalists with leading scholars and clerics to tackle some of our thorniest problems. Thanks for listening.